had been in my church for years. At the beginning, I had a great experience. Every week I felt challenged by my pastor. I felt encouraged by small group. I felt motivated by the message, no complaints. But after a while, things changed. I felt like I was coasting. Church felt just so routine. I wasn't getting much out of church anymore. Was it someone else's fault? My pastor? My small group? Was it me? I was stuck in a rut. God showed me my attitude was all wrong. And slowly started to change me. I had quit serving. Church had become all about me and my needs, rather than God and His glory. I began to sit back and let everyone else serve. But by His grace, by His grace, by His grace, the Lord changed my attitude from I want to I will. I will. I will. Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. At the beginning of 2016, I presented to you as a congregation our vision for this year, which was a theme of serving others. And you look over on the side there, you see our, our four purposes as a church, and, and one is to serve. And uh, I said that we do that through three ways. We serve one another, and, and for the last uh, ten uh, or so weeks, we've been going through a series called One Another. And it was looking at the one another passages of Scripture and how uh, we are to interact with each other, how we're to uh, encourage each other, how we're to pray for each other, how we're to grow with each other, and how together we're, we are to um, build each other up. And then we want to, the second thing we need to do to serve others is to serve the church. And then finally, serve the world. Uh, we are going to begin today a series um, that highlights that second part, which is serving the church. And to do that, we're going to use a book as a basis. Now, using a book is, is, is different than uh, my normal preaching, and so with that comes some differences, and I want you to understand that. Um, if you have not received one of these, I believe we have a few left, um, and we should have one per family, so if your family has not received one, please uh, check with the Welcome Center afterwards, and hopefully we have some more. But uh, my challenge for you is this, is each week, read through the chapter for that week. This week was chapter one, so by next Sunday, read chapter two. Uh, you will see that I will follow the basic outline of this, but I will add a lot that's not in here. Um, and, uh, but the idea is going through that. When you do a book, um, what that means sometimes is that you, we spend, if you know my preaching style, I like to stay basically in one passage with this. We'll probably be in various passages throughout the time, and so I want you to understand that. But what I would like to do as we go through this study is prove to you from Scripture that each of you has a responsibility to serve the church. It is not just... Uh, the action of a few, it is the responsibility of everyone. And in order to do that, what I want to do is we need to start with our attitude. The, really, the first thing, until we can properly serve, we need to have the right attitude towards the church, towards service. If we have a right biblical attitude towards the church and church membership, then you will experience joy as a church member in serving. 
But in order to do that, you need to recognize a couple things. First of all, you need to recognize that there is no perfect church. (laughs) You know, people are flawed, and so that means churches are flawed. I know people who have spent uh, months trying to find the perfect church, and they finally come to the conclusion there isn't one. Our church is not perfect. We have flaws. If you're going to our church, First Baptist Church, or any other church, you're going to find something that you don't like, something that doesn't meet your criteria. And understand, that's going to happen. The second thing we must not acknowledge is there is no perfect pastor. Oh, I was waiting for some response on that, but apparently not. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. There is no perfect pastor, there's no perfect staff, there's no perfect deacon board, there's no perfect... Uh, Sunday school teachers, there isn't. Um, I, I, a number of years ago, I got an email. You remember those, well, today they're on Facebook more, but you remember those chain emails you would get from people and said, if you send this to you know, 10 other people, you'll be happy? Somehow that works. I don't know. I don't think it does. But you know, some people love them. If you do, I'm sorry. But uh, I, I got one one time that said this. It was called The Perfect Pastor. I'm going to read it to you now. You need to note the sarcasm. If you don't know me, I'm a very sarcastic person, so note the sarcasm as you read through this. It's called The Perfect Pastor. The perfect pastor preaches exactly ten minutes. He condemns sin but never hurts anyone's feelings. He works from 8 a.m. until midnight and also is the church janitor. The perfect pastor makes $40 a week, wears good clothes, drives a good car, buys good books, and donates $30 a week to the church. The perfect pastor is 29 years old and has 40 years of experience. Above all, the perfect pastor is the most handsome man in the room. Sorry, it doesn't work here, but... The perfect pastor has a burning desire to work with teenagers and spends most of his time with senior citizens. He smiles all the time with a straight face because he has a sense of humor that keeps him seriously dedicated to his church. He makes 15 home visits a day, but is always in the office. The perfect pastor always has time for church meetings and all the committees and never misses a single meeting, yet he is always evangelizing the lost. If your pastor does not measure up, simply send this notice to six other churches that are tired of their pastor too. Then bundle up your pastor and send them to the church at the top of the list. If everyone cooperates, in one week you will receive 1,643 pastors. One of them should be perfect. Have faith in this letter. One church broke the chain and got its old pastor back in less than three weeks. I don't think it works, but uh, if you want to try it, you can. I think you'll be sorely disappointed. But the fact is, we don't have a perfect church. You don't have a perfect pastor. But yet, God still asks you to serve. God still asks you to be a part of the church body. In this study, I want to look at nine traits that every church member should have as they focus on serving God. And every church member should understand the importance of serving God. The first one we want to look at is that every church member uh, should have the right attitude and should move from I am to I will. By that I mean every church member should change just their attitude of desire to serve, but then says I will serve. 
So this morning I want to take some time and look at what is the right attitude of a church member. What should be your attitude as a church member? And there's four things we want to look at. First of all, I want to look at this. I am a uh, unifying church member. I am a unifying church member. Take your Bibles, as I said, and turn to Ephesians uh, chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, and I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 4. It says in verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pray. God, I pray that you help us to understand the message that you have given us today. Lord, help us to understand the importance of having right attitudes as we begin the process of serving the church. Lord, help us to change who we are, where it needs to be changed. Help us to strengthen the areas that you've already given us the ability to do well. Lord, be with my words. Help them to be from you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. In this passage, if you look back in Ephesians chapter 4, it says, uh, in verse 3, it says that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. That as a church, uh, unity should be an essential part. And really, in any aspect of life, unity is an essential part to success. If you follow sports, you know that if a team is not unified, then they uh, will not be successful. This year, in the uh, National Basketball Association, one team broke the record for the most wins any team has ever won in a year. And one of the characteristics that that team has is that they work as a team. They're a fantastic Uh, unified team. Sports is that way. Music is that way. If you uh, love orchestras and listening to orchestra, imagine listening to an orchestra when suddenly the the trumpet section decided that they wanted to do their own thing. I'm a trumpet player, and as trumpet players, we tend to think we're the most important part of an orchestra, and so it's like trumpets to do that. But it wouldn't sound right, would it? Imagine if you're at home and and unity is missing. And maybe for some of you that's the case in your home. There's not a unity. There's not a a, a cohesion in your home. And you know what happens? It begins to have problems. There begins to be breakdown in communication. There begins to be uh, disorganization in your home. And you find that, that you lack success in a home. In a church, when there's no unity, people do not grow. God is not glorified. It does not mean that we never disagree. Because we're going to disagree. But yet, God tells us over and over again that we're to be united in love. Ephesians tells us here in that passage, he says we need to be eager to maintain a unity. We need to be eager to do that. But I want you to notice something in this passage. Look at again Ephesians chapter uh, 4 and verse 1. It says there, I therefore, and I say many times, it's important for us to understand why. So I want to go back and look at a few verses where Paul tells us, and we studied Ephesians a couple years ago, and so some of this is review, but I want to go back and look at why Paul tells us that we're supposed to be united. Look, if you will, at Ephesians chapter 1, and starting in verse 4. Ephesians 1, 4, he says, Even as He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love, He predestined us, For adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. God's desire was to adopt us as His children. Isn't that a fantastic thought? Look at verse 11. Excuse me, look at verse 7. 
In Him, in Christ, we have redemption. We have been purchased through His blood. We have forgiveness of our sins. Look at verse 11. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him. We see through those that this is God declaring, this is my desire for you. My desire is that I adopt you as my son. My desire is that I redeem you by my blood. My desire is that I, I, I give you an inheritance. But the problem is us. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, And you were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. He tells us, he says, but here's the problem. My desire was to, to adopt you as my children. My desire was to forgive you. My desire was to give you an incredible inheritance. But the problem was, is you were full of sin. And you were dead in your sins. And you were walking your own way. And you were doing your own thing. But thankfully it doesn't end there. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. He says, but God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loves us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And He tells us there, He says, even though you were dead in those sins, and those sins were keeping you from this inheritance, those sins were keeping you from being called my son, those sins were keeping you from forgiveness, He says, but God, who is rich in in love, gave us His grace. If you read on, if you read in verse 10, it says then this, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. God's desire is not just that He saved us by His grace, but then He wants us to serve Him. We go on in Ephesians chapter 3, look at verse 11. It says this is, excuse me, this uh, was according to the eternal purpose that He realized in Christ Jesus in whom we have boldness to access with confidence through our faith in Him. And God comes and says, not only have I saved you, not only have I given you an inheritance, but you can come into my presence at any time. That is the mindset we come to with verse, chapter 4 and verse 1, when He says, I therefore, because of all that, because of those facts, we walk and we conduct ourselves in a way that reflects that God has saved us and what God has saved us from and what God has saved us to do. And when we contemplate all of those things, then the result of this is we live in unity. The result of this is we come together because you know what? Here's the thing. You have been saved. I've been saved. And so we should be united in that fact. You have been forgiven. I have been forgiven. You are uh, God's adopted son. I am God's adopted son. So we have that. You are a co-heir of Christ. I am a co-heir of Christ. You were once dead in your sin. I was dead in my sin. And so because of all those things, uh, here Paul says, therefore, because of all that, walk like you actually mean that. Walk in a way worthy. Disunity in our church proves or shows that we don't actually believe that God saved us. Disunity in the church shows that we don't actually believe that we've been adopted by Christ. John MacArthur made this statement, a preacher and an author, he said this, about his own church. He said, the thing I hate most in our church, the thing I hate most is spiritual apathy, indifference to the Lord. Then he went on and said this, 
That's what I hate most. But the thing I fear most is disunity, discord, conflict, division. I believe Paul felt the same way. Paul felt that the the greatest detriment to the growth of the church, the greatest detriment to that was a church that was not unified, a church that was not in unity together. And that's why in, in Philippians he said this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of God so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul said the same thing that he said in Ephesians. He said, here's this. He said, our desire, if we're walking according to the way that we should, if we're walking because of what God has done for us, then we're going to walk in unity. We're going to have the same mind. We're going to have the same spirit, the same soul together. I love the way he puts it, though, in that passage. He says, if you look there in the middle, he says, whether I come and see you or I'm absent. How many of you remember when you were a kid and your mom And dad said, we're leaving, we're going out for a little bit. And whether I'm here or not, you need to do the right thing. How many remember your parents saying something like that? And that's what Paul's saying, like a parent. He's saying, whether whether I'm there or not, you need to get along. Why? Because it's just what God expects of you as a church. In the passage in Ephesians, if you look in Ephesians again, Paul tells us that this unity requires four traits. And let's look at those just briefly this morning. If you look in Ephesians chapter 4, he says in verse 2, with all humility is the first one. Unity requires humility. If we're to be united as a church, we need to be humble. Why does it require humility? Because sometimes in any setting, we have to back down from what we think in order to keep peace. We don't compromise. We don't compromise our beliefs, but we do compromise our preferences. We do uh, compromise those things that are not, uh, are not found in the pages of Scripture, but are based on our own opinions. We, we compromise on that. We come together. You know, there are going to be things that you don't agree with someone else, and you know what? It, it's It's okay. This means that we're going to view others as better than ourselves, and so we're not going to trumpet our own opinions. Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to uh, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We'll go back to Ephesians, but we'll also be in Philippians a little bit this morning, so you can look there. Philippians chapter 2, in verse 1. Notice what Paul says in Philippians 2.1. So if, uh, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. He says if you, if you want any encouragement, verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind. If you want to encourage your leadership, then he's saying here, be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. You want this church to to be a church that is successful, he tells us in this passage, then be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord. But then he says, how do you do that? Look at verse 3. Let nothing be done from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Look each of you... Uh, not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. 
You know, it's very normal for us to trumpet our own causes, isn't it? It's very normal. It's very normal for you to be concerned about your own area, even inside the church. It's many times as a pastor, I'll have people come to me and, and hey, we need to get this done. And then someone else come and we need to get this done. And those two things compete, but they're trumpeting their own areas. And that's, that's understandable, but in humility we need to say, you know, well, what's the best for the whole church? Not just for myself, not just for my area of ministry, but what's best for the whole church? Unity requires humility. Unity requires saying, you know what, I am going to do what's best for others. But secondly, we need to notice that in the passage in Ephesians, it tells us that unity requires gentleness. What is gentleness? Gentleness means that we control ourselves with one another and we show kindness to one another. When a believer is gentle, also another term that's often used is meek. That's the uh, opposite of self-assertion. Rude. Harsh. You interact that way. It's having control over your emotions. It does not, as many times people think, if you're a meek person, if you're a gentle person, that means that, you, uh, that you're weak. That's not what the idea is there. I believe that this gentleness, this meekness, is a balance between one who is angry all the time and one who is never angry. It's a, it's a balance between one who is, who is completely in control and, and uh, never shows emotion to one who is uh, out of control all the time. We see examples of this in Scripture. If you, t- if, if you were to look there, you don't need to turn there now, but Numbers chapter 12 and verse 3, it describes Moses. You know what it says about Moses? It says Moses was the meekest of all men. And that's an incredible statement. But we know Moses wasn't weak. We know Moses didn't lack emotion. Moses was the guy who, when he came down from, uh, from receiving the Ten Commandments, he came and he found the people of Israel worshiping a false god. And, and what did he do? Did he say, that's okay, I'll join in? No, the Bible tells us in, in anger, he threw down the tablets that God had given him and, and, he, and he took the, the, the golden calf and he, and he melted it down and he made the people drink it. You talk about someone who, who, who had the ability to stand up. And yet the Bible describes him as one of the meekest men of all time. We see another example is Jesus. Jesus is described as meek and humble of heart. Yet one day Jesus walked into the temple and when he walked in the temple he saw his, the house of God being used as a market. And can you imagine the scene when Jesus walks in and He begins in, in almost a, a controlled rage, turning over tables and, and, and throwing things around and, because He said, this is not the purpose of God's house. That's not a display of a man who's weak. So unity requires a gentleness that says, you know what? I know I could stand up right now but I'm going to be gentle with people. It's a graciousness. Solomon emphasized gentleness in this way in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1, when he said this, a soft answer turns away wrath. Some translations use the term, a gentle answer turns away wrath. Are we a people who are are harsh? We're mean-spirited. We're not going to have unity. The third thing unity requires is patience. 
Patience means forbearing under provocation or pain. Patience is a term that is is often seen in Scripture as long-suffering. And and the indication in that is that you suffer. And it's saying, I'm going to be long in my suffering. And I'm going to allow uh, God to work in that. And believers, if we're going to have unity as a church, we need to exhibit patience with one another. And patience is the Spirit which never gives up, for endures even to the end, even through adversity. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it says this, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. But then he says this in closing, Paul says, Be patient with them all. You're going to interact with people in this church that are going to be difficult for you. But unity means patience. Unity means you're going to say, you know what, this person has hurt me numerous times, but I'm still going to love them. I'm still going to be patient with them. Unity says I'm going to be patient, but not only that, unity says I'm going to be accepting. If you look at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 2, it says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. And then it says, uh, one of the one another's we looked at, it says, bearing with one another in love. It tells us they're bearing with one another. And that may seem to be the same as patience. You say, isn't that very similar? And, and, and it kind of is, but there's a slight difference that I want you to notice. Patience is endurance, is enduring the injuries caused by others. Patience is saying, you know what? This person continues to be uh, mean to me and, and mean-spirited, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be patient with them. But bearing with another is slightly different because bearing with another is enduring their problems. In other words, it's this. It, it is not about uh, what they have done to you, but it's about who they are. And let's just be uh, completely frank here. It's about saying, okay, there are annoying personalities that maybe people rub you the wrong way. And for every one of us, it might be different. Um, maybe for many of you, the annoying personality is your pastor. <laughs> and uh, that's understandable. But patience says, you know, I'm going to bear with them. I'm going to bear with them. It's learning to be gracious. Sometimes we have a hard time with that, don't we? You ever interacted with someone that it's like, uh, this is the way they think everything should be done, and if, if it's not, then everyone else is wrong? That can be frustrating, can it? You ever, you ever interacted with someone who, who uh, you know, they just, uh, they, they just rub you the wrong way? Unity says, you know what, we're going we're gonna to bear with them. A good word to describe this idea of bearing with one another, acceptance, is the word tolerance. And I know the word tolerance today is a touchy word in our culture today. But when we tolerate differences, it's saying, you know what, I'm not going to try to change that person. Now, I do want to add the caveat, as a church we have the responsibility to confront sin. But yet unity says, I'm I'm going to bear with one another's differences. I am going to be the type of person that's going to endure. So the first question I have for you, are you a unifying church member? Are you you, um, humble? Are you gentle? Are you patient? Are you accepting? The second thing, another attitude that we need to have as church members is, am I a sacrificing church member? I told you that we'd be in a, uh, Philippians again. So look at a Philippians again, chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. 
And I want to continue reading. I read in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. I want to continue reading verse 5. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Remember, I just read the earlier part of this passage, and, and sometimes we forget this. This is such a fantastic passage that talks about what Christ did and what Christ did for us, but yet it comes right on the heels of a passage where, where he is where Paul is promoting unity as a church and where Paul is talking about humility and saying this is how we to act. And so in this passage he's saying an essential quality of unity, an essential quality of growing as a church is sacrifice. We as a church are to sacrifice. How do we uh, as believers live and yet sacrifice in a way that is pleasing to God? And really this is a question that, that we have to ask ourselves today because I think this is a question that in many ways we've lost in our culture today. How does it, what does it mean for a Christian to sacrifice in contemporary culture? What does that mean? You know, we get it in, in, in the Bible times. I mean, they sacrifice in great ways. They sacrifice their lives and, and they sacrifice their money and they sacrifice all these things. We get it. Maybe even, you know, a few hundred years ago when, when people sacrificed and, and, and during the Reformation. We get it that people sacrificed to come to America because they wanted their religious freedom. But what does it mean to sacrifice in today's culture? Do believers live sacrificially today? Do you and I live sacrificially? As we've seen throughout the one another passages that we looked at, living sacrificially means living not just for ourselves, but for other words. In other words, it is for other people. In other words, it's the idea of dying to ourselves and sacrificing our desires for the good of others. And sacrifice as a church member means giving to the Lord whatever He requires of our time, our possessions, our energies. I think we've gotten to a place in our culture today where we sacrifice for our families, and that's good. We should. You should sacrifice. Dads, you should sacrifice in a major way for your kids and your wife. We sacrifice for our work. We put in hours upon hours upon hours. You know, I have a position where my ministry also is my work, and, and, and sometimes it's a struggle for me because I could work 80, 90 hours a week and still have work to do. We sacrifice for our work. We sacrifice, and, and those things make sense, but I think sometimes we then sacrifice for other things too. We sacrifice for our hobbies. We sacrifice for the things that we enjoy. But how often do we sacrifice for the work of the Lord? And I'm speaking to people that I know many of you do, and so I'm not at all trying to say that we don't, but uh, do we do what we should? The Lord commanded in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Do you have, have righteous kingdom living on your mind in everything that you do? 
Do you strive in everything you do that you say, my number one priority in life is Jesus Christ in His kingdom? Or is that kind of an afterthought? Our willingness to sacrifice is an indication of our devotion to God. You know, people have been tried and tested to see if they would put God's, God first in their lives, and many times we fail. The ultimate passage that talks about sacrifice is in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brother, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, the nature that is described here of a living and holy sacrifice, and that is uh, the, the language of sacrifice, that's very familiar, but it was even more familiar to the Jews of that day. It's a priestly language that he's using. It's a sacrificial language. It's a Levitical language that they were using. And it takes us back to the Old Testament. The sacrificial system when a priest would come and he would place an offering on the altar and it would be slain. The priests, though, were offering dead sacrifices. Not living ones. They were offering dead sacrifices as a picture of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ would do in dying on the cross and paying our penalty of sin. But we're not called to offer dead sacrifices. In many cases, that would be a lot easier. We're not called to do that. We're called here because that system is gone. It was dismissed. It was removed when Jesus Christ died on the cross. And, and as we've mentioned a couple times recently, and the veil of the temple was, was, was torn. The sacrificial system was gone. The sacrificing of dead animals. And now there's a new kind of sacrifice in the New Testament. And it's a living sacrifice. And what is this living sacrifice? It's, it's me and it's you. And it's placing ourself on the altar. It's placing ourself in a place. And what was it? In the Old Testament, they would take that animal and they would slap it on the altar and it was saying, here I am. I'm giving to you, Lord. But no longer is it that. It's us saying, God, here is me. Whatever you need me for. But I think too often today we say, God, um, I have this to do, I have this to do, I have this to do, and here's a little bit left of me. Use me in that little way. And God says, it's not a living sacrifice. It's not. Notice what he says at the end of that verse. He says, when you offer your sacrifice to God, it's your spiritual worship. You know, some people come on Sunday morning and you worship God and you say, hey, I'm worshiping God. Fantastic. That's not all there is about your worship. That's not. Because what he's saying here is, is your spiritual worship is about a living sacrifice day by day saying, God, here's my life. You use it. As a church, if we're to have the right attitude about our church, we're going to be a unifying church member. But secondly, we're going to be a sacrificial church member that says, I'm, I'm ready to open myself up to you, Lord. But thirdly, I am a praying church member. I love knowing in this church, in First Baptist Church, there are some incredible prayer warriors. I love knowing that there are people in this church that every day pray for me. That means a lot to me. I know there are people in this church that every day pray for my family. And that means a lot to me. We're thankful for that. 
I know there are people in this church that pray for everyone in this church. I know there are individuals who, on a routine basis, pray through the members of this church. But with that said, I think one of the real problems in churches today, one of the biggest problems in churches today, is that that as a whole, churches do not have the prayer life that we need. We could enumerate many problems that we face as a church. We could, we could talk about many things that we struggle with. We could say, hey, we're not this, or we're not that, or we don't do this well enough, or we don't do that well enough. But really, what it comes down to, all of those things actually are secondary. All of those things are, in some ways, minor. The real problem is, is that I believe the prayer life of churches as a whole are not what they should be. Take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. We see in Acts chapter 4 a really incredible story. Peter and John have been preaching. Scripture tells us in Acts chapter 2 that literally thousands of people are being added to the church every day. I mean, you talk about an incredible revival. And because of that, it's causing attention, and, and the religious leaders are not happy with it. And so Peter and John are, are taken before uh, the, the leaders, and they're given an opportunity to attest to what they're doing, and they begin to explain what they're doing. I love what it says in, in, in uh, Acts chapter 4 and verse 13. This is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. It says in Acts 4.13, Now when they, that they is speaking about the unbelievers. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men. I, I love the uh, Greek word there. It actually is, is uh, the word that we use to get idiot. I'm not being disrespectful. The word is... is, is uh, a word that uh, is where we get idiot. In other words, these, these leaders look and saw Peter and John and said, I don't get it. These guys are uneducated idiots. But then look what it says. They saw him and they were astonished. How is it that these uneducated guys are doing so much and then notice what it says next in the next phrase there. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. I mean, the impact of being with Christ made them something powerful. So they get taken and they're taken before the council and then, and then Scripture tells us they're thrown in jail and they spend some time in jail. And then we come to verse 23. And, and I want to look at verse 23 and see what it says. And I'm going to read in, in verse 23 down to verse 33. It says, And when they were released, they went to their friends and they reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy, servants, Jesus, the holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Pilate, excuse me, Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand 
in your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. I want to show in this passage five marks of a praying church. Five marks of a church who is, is desperately praying to God. And we see that Number one, in a praying church, there is a uh, recognition of a sovereign God and the need for prayer. John and Peter have been released, and immediately after being released, they go to the fellow Christians in Jerusalem and report all they had done. It tells us that in verse 23. They come and, and they talk about what, what took place. And, and when the Christians heard Peter and John's report, what did they do? Did they stop and say, hey, let's make a mission report of this? And go and tell other churches. No, what did they do? Immediately it says they prayed. Why? Because they recognized that prayer was a fundamental part of what they did. They recognized it was not just an afterthought. It was an important aspect of what they did. And notice what they prayed. Look what you see in verse 24. Immediately it says, Sovereign Lord. They realized the sovereignty of God. The supremacy of God. That God was in charge. And nothing they did on their own was going to be good enough. Immediately they prayed. Do we recognize the need of prayer? You know, as I was studying this, I was rebuking myself. How often is prayer not the first thing I do? How often is it that I do this and this and I, I fall out of my own wisdom? For them, they realize we, we can't do anything until we pray. The second thing that we want to notice about a praying church is a pray, in a praying church, um, our faith, um, if you can turn over the slide there, our, our, our faith and expectation, okay, you went too far. <laughs> you go back. I don't know, it's, it's going slow. Here, we'll get it here. Stuck for some reason. Our faith and expectation is toward the Lord. Verse 24, if you notice, it says in that passage, who made, talking about the sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. They turn their attention and their eyes from man and from their problems to the Lord. Think about this for a moment. Here they are in their situation and, and their, their leaders, Peter and John, have just been in prison and have been released from prison. And they come back and they don't stop and say, oh man, whew, that stinks. You guys have been in prison. What do they immediately do? They turn from their problems and they immediately turn to the Savior. They immediately turn and say, God, you've made heaven and earth. That's nothing compared to this. They were in line with the psalmist in, in Psalm 62.5. David said this, For God alone, O my soul, wait in patience, for my hope is from you. 
You know, after all, they realized that the problems that they faced uh, were, were, were nothing compared to God. The problems that they faced were nothing compared to what God had done in their lives. And they knew God could solve them. They knew that God was the solution to problems. Not, not meetings, not pastors, not money. That God was the solution. And they understood this about God. Notice what it says. They understood God was sovereign. Verse 24, we read that. But look down at verse 28. It said, To do whatever your hand and your plan has uh, predestined to take place. Here's what they said to God. They said, God, just do whatever you were already going to do. And we want to be a part of it. They understood God was sovereign. They understood God saw all. If you look at verse 29, it says there, And now, Lord, look and see. A praying church understands that our faith and our expectancy is towards the Lord. Our faith and our expectancy is towards the Lord. It is not about us, it's about Him. And thirdly, a praying church says that there is a, in a praying church, there's a strong desire to obey the Lord's command to evangelize the lost. I want you to notice verse 29 again. This is an amazing thought. It says in verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. When they had an opportunity to pray to God, what did they pray for? You know, they came to God and first of all, they glorified God. They acknowledged who God was. They acknowledged the sovereignty of God. They acknowledged God was in control. They acknowledged God saw them. And then the first thing they said was, was, was not God keep us safe. The first thing they said to us was, God, help us to proclaim the gospel. Because I believe that a praying church is a church that, ha- that has a strong desire to obey the command to evangelize the lost. If we're a church that's not evangelizing lost, if we're a church that's not spreading the gospel, I believe it starts with the fact that we, because we're not praying. We're not praying that God will work. We're not praying that God will use us in a way that will reach the lost around us. In a praying church, there will be an overwhelming desire of its members to to, uh, evangelize those around them, to tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ. And here, that's what it was with this church. They weren't concerned with the fact that they were facing persecution. They were concerned with the fact that they hadn't done enough to tell others about Christ. They were concerned with the fact that they didn't have enough boldness. And they're saying, God, give us boldness in the face of this to do what is necessary. The fourth thing we see in a praying church, the, the Holy power Spirit is seen. Look at verse 31. It says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Spirit. The secret to, to the Holy Spirit working in our lives is prayer. When they had finished praying, immediately they felt the Holy Spirit move in their, in their church and they felt the Holy Spirit move in the midst of them and suddenly they had boldness to go out. You know, it's amazing. We're sometimes afraid, and I say this personally, sometimes we're afraid to go to the gas station and, and tell someone about Jesus. They were walking out of their houses facing people who wanted them dead. And yet they were bold. A praying church is one who sees the power of the Holy Spirit. But finally, a praying church, in a praying church, there is grace evidenced in the lives of believers. 
verse 33, it says, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them. That idea of grace is that, uh, that you, you ever heard the phrase, Every, everything he touches is gold? I believe that in a, in a, in a real sense, in a praying church, Everything we touch is gold. And I don't mean financially. I mean that God gives us grace. That God uses us. That God makes it evident to the world around us that that we are blessed by God. Wouldn't that be an awesome description of us? It was so evident that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And because of that, they had grace. And that grace manifested itself in in their unity. If you look at verse 32, it says, they were of one heart and one soul. Those two things are different. One heart is the idea that their their teaching and and, and their understanding of Scripture was was, uh, united. But then it says that they were in one soul, and that is the idea of fellowship, that they loved to be together. I mean, these guys, they loved to be together, which was evidence of grace. Again, I said this earlier, we talk about unity, you know, there are differences, but, uh, that, but is there a love to be together? When, when, we are, when we are growing in prayer and when God's grace is evident in our lives, you know what you find? You love being with people no matter if they are different. You know, I love being with all kinds of people because I know that God's given us the ability to be united through His grace. So my question for you is, are you a praying church member? And then finally, am I a joyful church member? One last passage to look at. Look at uh, Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Paul is speaking here in Philippians chapter 4, and I want to read to you starting in verse 4 down to verse 7. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guide your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Notice the progression that takes place there. He says, First of all, rejoice. Rejoice in everything. He said, that's difficult to do. Well, then, then, then as he continues on, he gives you, okay, how does this take place? Let your reasonableness be known. That word reasonableness in the King James says uh, the idea of graciousness. Be gracious to people. We talked about that earlier. And he says, go on, and he says, uh, don't, don't uh, uh, be anxious. The lack of anxiousness. How do we get the lack of anxiousness? By praying. By praying to God for everything. You know, instead of worrying, okay, how, how am I going to pay for this bill? Pray. Well, that's easy to say. It's hard to do. I know. I know. But pray. And then he says, with thanksgiving, be thankful for what we have. Oh, oh man, I'm thankful for uh, the, this, this thing that God has sent my way, even though it's hard. And then finally, peace. How do you get peace? Through having a right attitude. So what can we take from this? Peace and joy is not the result of good times. In fact, peace and joy is often the result of potentially bad times. Paul is talking to a church that was facing persecution. Paul himself was facing persecution. And yet he said, be joyful. 
the book talked about, if you read the book, you saw this. The book talked about GCMs. What are GCMs? Anyone remember? Grumpy church members. What's a grumpy church member? These are the people that are the biggest critics. Okay, these are the people that are upset about everything. These are people that believe that church is their place where they pay their dues and then they get their privileges. Grumpy church members. I do not see anywhere in Scripture where we should be grumpy church members. In fact, the exact opposite is true. Over and over and over again, we are told to be rejoicing. We are told to be joyful. We are told to be people who are, it's evident that we, we, we love the Lord. I love the study of Paul. As I said last Sunday, Pastor Nate and I were at a conference and one of the preachers was talking about Paul and he said this, Paul had, had such a joyful attitude. He had such a thrilling attitude in everything he did. And in Philippians 1.21, Paul says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I mean, can you imagine the philosophy Paul had? I mean, he would go and they would imprison him and he would, he would, he would, he would turn and he would witness to the, to the guards. He would, they would threaten death and what he would, what would he would say? He would say, hey, to kill me means I'm in the presence of God. Woo! Great! And they'd say, fine, we'll, we'll let you live. And he would say, okay, then I'm going to tell everyone about Jesus Christ. You could not get Paul down. He was not a grumpy church member. He was a joyous church member that counted his blessings. And in our church, do we have joyous church members? People that count their blessings are thankful for the freedom that we have to worship together, are constantly an encouragement to the pastors, to the staff, to the deacons, to the other servants of the church. No matter what's going on in their lives. A number of months ago, we had a funeral for Jack Kaufman. I remember Jack... Uh, and I, I spent some time with Jack in different hospital visits, but what I appreciated most about Jack was every time Jack saw me, he gave me an encouraging word, and he smiled. And I remember towards the end of Jack's life, when uh, the end of a service, if he was able to be here, which was rare, and he would walk by me, and he would reach out his hand that was very weak and very fa- frail. And yet he would always look at me and smile. And he was a joyous church member. And we grumble and we complain about the, the smallest things. What is your attitude? Are you a joyous church member? In closing, I just want to tie it all together and say this. These are all attitudes you should have. You should be a unifying church member. You should be a sacrificial church member. You should be a praying church member. You should be a joyous church member. But the attitude is not enough. And that's what we're going to get into in the next nine or eight, excuse me, messages. Take a break for Mother's Day and a couple others, but we'll eventually get to all eight. And that is this. Your attitudes then should reflect your actions. Let me give you an example of this. If I went to my wife and said to my wife, I love you, and she said... Well, great, the trash needs to go out. Okay, well, you can do it. 
You know, yeah, I maybe have an attitude that says I love her, and maybe, maybe I even say it over and over again, and maybe I say, hey, I'm glad I'm married to you. Oh, man, I'm so thankful I have you. Oh, yes, it's great that, that, that we can be in this marriage together, and oh, man, it's wonderful that I can participate in marriage. Yes, it's, it's fantastic, but yet I don't ever do anything. My attitude is never reflected in my actions. Then do I really love my wife? And every one of you would have to say, no, you don't. And here's where the first point of today hits. It's for the next eight weeks, I want to talk about us taking from the mindset of, that says I am to then putting action to that attitude and say, I will. We cannot say we have those attitudes. We cannot say we're unifying. We cannot say we're sacrificial. We cannot say we're praying. We cannot say that we're joyful unless we reflect it in our lifestyle by serving. This is what it means when we say, I will. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the blessing of serving you, and I pray that uh, you will help us to understand the importance of serving. Right, it's not enough just to say, uh, say things, but then we need to put action behind our attitudes. And I pray that you'll help us to be committed to doing that. As we go through this study, Lord, help us to see that over and over again. We ask this in your name. Amen.